I want you to imagine in ancient Israel, the people of Israel are waiting for the Messiah, the coming king, who will uh, release them, deliver them, liberate them from the oppression by the Romans. They've been oppressed for centuries. They will release them from oppression, but also that he'll just set everything right and will create this, this brave new world, this kingdom where everything is good and right and there's no suffering. And, and they're waiting for this Messiah. And there comes a time when there's a prophet in the wilderness. There haven't been many prophets, at least not prophets like this, for centuries. And there's a prophet called John in the wilderness, a voice crying out, prepare the way for the king. The kingdom is coming. Get ready. Repent. Straighten out your thinking because the kingdom is coming. And then one day, John the Baptist is there and he has some of his followers. And one day, Jesus the Nazarene walks by. The carpenter's son walks by and John the Baptist points to him. He turns to his disciples and he points to Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the, the, the sin of the world. Behold Jesus. And I want to be, as it were, an echo to that prophet's voice this morning and say to us all, let us behold Jesus. Let us behold Jesus. Whatever else is distracting your attention, whatever else has caught your attention, forget it. Because there's nobody like Jesus. I want you to behold him, to fix your eyes upon him, to be captivated by him again. And every time anybody gets up to speak here on a Sunday morning, really what we should be doing is saying, look at Jesus. A preacher does not come to, Paul says this, we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ as Lord. We don't just want to come with just a few ideas and thoughts. We want to open up the scriptures, which are all about Jesus, and point to Jesus and say to you all, behold, Jesus. And over these last few months, back in September, we said we really want to bring everything down to the, the, the essential of following Jesus together. And for the first few months, we looked at what does it mean to follow? What does being a follower mean? After Easter, we're going to spend some time looking at what does it mean to follow Jesus together? What does it mean to be together in this? But right now, over the last few months, we've been looking at Jesus. Who is it? that we're following. Who is it that captivates us so much we want to follow him? And whether we're talking about Jesus, the passionate pursuer of our soul, Jesus, the great boundary breaker, Jesus, the servant king, Jesus, the one who brings peace in the storm, or Jesus, as I'm speaking about this morning, the Lamb of God, we're saying, behold, Jesus. In the NIV, it says, look, it just doesn't do it, does it really? Look, we need behold, we need the authorized version. Behold, the Lamb of God, look at Jesus. So I want to talk about Jesus, the Lamb of God, just 
briefly this morning. And uh, I'm a little bit early, I realize. It's a kind of Easter message. This would have been good for Good Friday, but I'm not here Good Friday, so I'm bringing it on Palm Sunday. <laughs> That's all right. Jesus, the Lamb of God. But you see, we probably, if we've been around a while as Christians, we probably understand something a little bit about what's implied in this word, this title, the Lamb of God. But, and some of the Israelites would have done that. But many people, maybe people here this morning or listening today think, well, Lamb of God. And it is strange, isn't it? If you think about it, the, 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 the coming king, the great Messiah, who's going to release them from foreign oppression and set up this wonderful kingdom. If you think of him coming as a king, as a mighty warrior, and yet his symbol is the Lamb. I've been reading my bedtime reading <clears throat> over recent uh, months has been um, a history of Europe. I've been impressed. Yeah. Well, it sends me to sleep anyway. So, uh, <laughs> but um, I tell you what, <clears throat> I bet Alexander the Great, or Julius Caesar, or Genghis Khan, or, or or Napoleon, I bet you they didn't have a banner or heraldry when they went into battle with a lamb on it. I mean, they, you you would think it would be something, wouldn't you? Like a an eagle, or a lion, or some crown, or something, but a lamb, Larry the lamb, doesn't, doesn't, it just doesn't feel right. I mean, you think of a lamb, you think it's, it's helpless, it's weak, it's pathetic, it may be a bit cute, but who wants a cute Messiah? And yet, you don't hear much about it in the Gospels, it's just that couple of phrases, and, you, and not much in Paul's letters, but when you get to the end, of the, of, the, of the New Testament in the book of Revelation, a book that was written about what Jesus has accomplished, reminding Christians who were suffering, who were going through suffering, reminding them that the Lamb has overcome. It's absolutely full of the Lamb. It's absolutely full. Of, as we've sung this, this morning, they're, they're all circling around the throne, worshiping and saying, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. There's, um, there's the Lamb's book of life. There's the song of the Lamb. There's, um, it's the lamb who undoes the scrolls. Don't quite know how he does it with his, uh, is it hooves? What do lambs have? Do they have hooves? I don't know. What do they have? Certainly not hands. But he undoes the scrolls and that really represents the releasing of God's power and purpose into the earth. It's the lamb that does that. There's the, the wedding feast of the lamb. There's the song. Did I mention the song? There's the song of the lamb and the, the river. The river of life that flows and fills the city of God in this new world. It flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. I mean, the Lamb is big. He's A-list by the time we get to the book of Revelation. I'd like to know who his agent was. I mean, he's so big. And yet, of course, ironically, it's the exact opposite of that. Because the Lamb is there to teach us something new about power and about glory. He's no celebrity. He's our beautiful savior. So where does it all go back to? Well, in the dim and distant past of the people of Israel. In fact, we can go back even before them. We can go right back to Adam and Eve. You know, the story where all that sin, it tells us and shows us, it pictures for us how sin came into the world. 
through our rebellions, through our rebellions and our independence and our not trusting God, but wanting to trust ourselves and do our own thing that brings all the sin and the suffering and the sorrow into our world. What happens is Adam and Eve, they try and stitch together some little garments out of leaves to cover their guilt and their shame. But God says, no, that, that won't do. He says, and he gives them an animal skin to cover their nakedness. Because you see, blood had to be shed. We can't cover our sin and our guilt and our shame with just a few garments stitched together, our, our little resolutions, our little promises to do better, our little performances. Blood has to be shed. Because the sin coming into this world is such a serious thing. You just take a moment, you'll only want to give it a moment to think of some of the most awful things that happen in our world as a result of sin, as a result of evil. Things happening right now on our doorsteps as well as in other nations across the world. Sin is in our world. It is such a serious thing. It isn't just a case of covering it. Blood must be shed. It's to show us the seriousness of it. And then there comes a time in the story of Israel where <clears throat> Abraham feels <clears throat> he's sensing God, telling him he's got to be prepared to sacrifice his own son. And you wonder if in Abraham there was this feeling, is this how it is then? Is this how we've got to deal with the sin problem? Because there was nations around them, cultures around him, where they did human sacrifice was the way they tried to deal with the sin problem. Was Abraham thinking, is this, is this it? Is this how we deal with sin? But when he was taking Isaac, you may remember this. If you, remember, you know this story, you may remember. Isaac says to his dad, where's the sacrifice? And, G and, and Abraham says these words, and maybe it's just to reassure him, but maybe it's expressing something in the heart of Abraham when he says these words, God himself will provide the lamb. God himself will provide the lamb. And uh, there's nothing that we can bring. There's nothing that we can provide that can deal with the problem of sin. God himself must provide the lamb. And what Abraham was saying there was expressing the, a longing that then continued throughout the generations, looking for God to provide the lamb. There was the Passover lamb. You remember when they were delivered out of Israel? And they sacrificed the lamb, excuse me, and put the blood on the, the lintels and the doorposts and, and so that the, the, the death when it came would pass over them. And then, of course, in the Levitical sacrificial system, they would sacrifice the lamb. It had to be a perfect and spotless lamb to cover their sins. But all of this was only temporary. It was pointing to something more than just the sacrificing of an actual, actual lamb. We're told in the Bible that the sacrifices that God does not desire, that's not what it's about. God himself will provide the lamb. And so when John the Baptist, you must understand, when John the Baptist is saying these words, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin. It's, it's, it's not my lamb. It's not your lamb. It's the lamb of God. God has finally provided the lamb that can take away the sin of the world. Nothing we could do. But God himself provides the lamb. This is the lamb of God. 
And of course, we know it points to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, bearing our sins and so that the, the, the sin of the world could be taken away. And we must be careful. We must understand. This is not because in the face of all the sin and evil and suffering in our world, represented, by the way, in the book of Revelation, by the beasts and the dragons and all these, the Antichrist, who is it that's going to overcome all that? Who is it that's going to come all of the, overcome these beasts, this evil, this chaos, this destruction? Who is going to overcome that? A little lamb in all his helplessness, in all his weakness. Now, we must be careful and not think, well, what? this isn't God saying, because he's going to defeat the devil through the cross. But this isn't God saying, because the Bible does say this, the weakness of God is greater than man's strength. So there's some truth in this, but he isn't saying <clears throat> to the devil, I could beat you with my hands tied behind my back. Not just one, I'm going to tie both my hands behind my back. I could beat you blindfolded. I'll tell you what, I could beat you if I became like a little lamb. I'm going to show you just how even my weakness is stronger than you. We're tempted to think that way, but I think he's showing us something more profound and more beautiful. And I want to take you to one of the stories, just very quickly, one of the passages in the Old Testament, in the story of Israel. By the way, Tim Keller says he thinks the plot line of the Bible is the story of the Lamb. It's all about the Lamb. God himself will provide a Lamb. I want to take you to one of the passages in the Old Testament story. And you know what? It might just be enough to read this to you and then just worship. We'll see. But I, <clears throat> I want to read it to you. You find it in Isaiah chapter 53. I think one of the most powerful and most beautiful passages in all of Scripture and I have the privilege of reading it to you this morning. You see, you have to understand, Isaiah was prophesying about this coming kingdom and this coming king. And he referred in a number of his prophecies, he referred to this coming king, ironically, as the servant of the Lord. And sometimes, <clears throat> excuse me, that picture of the servant of the Lord seems to be representing Israel. It's a plural thing. It's a people. And other times it seems to be representing this single person, this Messiah, and the odd thing is that well, some of it is about his kingliness, his greatness, his glory. A lot of it is about his servanthood. And in Isaiah 53, it's when we really get focused in on something which is unique about this king. Absolutely, amazingly, beautifully unique. Let me just, in fact, let's just start at the end of Isaiah 52. I hope my, uh, there we go. Let's go to verse 13 of Isaiah 52. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I'm going to read a little bit, explain something, and then I'm going to just read it to the rest of the chapter to you. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. Well, this sounds like a king, right? But many were amazed when they saw him. What were they amazed at? Was it because he was so splendid, so glorious, this amazing king, like a, like a lion, like an eagle? No, this is what amazed them. Read on. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. This is talking about the Jesus that has been beaten and whipped. It's prophesying about him and had a crown of thorns, ironically, shoved upon his head. 
He will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence. For they will see what they had not been told. told. They will understand what they would not heard about. They've never heard of a king like this. They've never heard of a warrior who's like this. And so it goes on. Excuse me, it helps if I hate know how to operate mobile phones, but there we go. Here we go. And so he says to these in Isaiah 50, who has believed our message? Would you believe anything like this, about power like this? To whom, the, whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? So when God reaches down from heaven to display his power, as one way to put it, it doesn't look like Rambo. It looks like a lamb. This is amazing. A king like this, rule like this, authority like this, power like this. Let's read on the whole of the chapter. Remember, it's speaking of Jesus. It's a prophecy about Jesus. The servant Jesus grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Have you ever imagined sometimes in some of these imaginative meditations, imagined yourself at the cross, imagined yourself at the time of Calvary, did you imagine yourself maybe as John, the beloved disciple who went all the way to the cross or, or the Roman soldier who said, <clears throat> behold, surely he was the son of God? Or would it be more accurate for many of us if we were like the soldiers who mocked him or the disciples who denied him with those who stayed away? We didn't care. Do you know, it was while, he were, while we were still hostile to him, he died for us. Let me read on. But it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole or be healed. Or, so, sorry, he was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly, unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. That's us, folks. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was a Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the good's 
Lord's good plan will prosper in his hand. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. That's us folks too. For he will bear all our sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. This is power. This is the power in God's kingdom. It's not the power of the tank or the missile. It's not the power of the sword. It's not the power of coercion. It's not even the power of celebrity or charismatic personality. It's the power of the Lamb. Here we have what some have called the terrible beauty of the cross. Terrible because the form of execution that the Romans had invented called crucifixion was absolutely horrific. Beautiful because here we see the love of God displayed like nothing else. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. It's the terrible beauty of the cross, but it's the power you see. We think of power, we think of the resurrection. Yeah, there is a power in life. The life in God, death could not hold. But there's a power even more so in love. I never get, I don't, I'm not, I'm not surprised that if God died, he'd come back to life again because of the eternal life that's in him. What absolutely amazes me and leaves me speechless like these things is that he died. He laid down his life for God died for us in Jesus died for us and it's that love that sacrificial selfless love that is the most powerful thing in the universe the lamb has overcome the lamb is on the throne let me just pick out one thing about it that just amazes me he did not open his mouth he did not open his mouth. Do you notice it said the kings were speechless? They were speechless because the lamb was speechless. They were speechless with amazement. He was speechless with sacrificial love. Because, you see, the, one of the reasons it amazes me is we live in a culture, certainly in the West anyway, we live in a culture of protest and outrage where everybody's raising their voice, everybody's demanding their rights, everybody's asserting themselves. We want to have our voice. So maybe there's an appropriate context where that's right. But what, don't, don't you find yourself longing for something different, for something better than that? Here's one who's done nothing wrong. He's completely innocent and he doesn't offer any defense. But he's led like a lamb to the slaughter. Don't know about you, that leaves me Amazed. I was going to say it leaves me speechless, but I've got another point to make, so I better not say that. <clears throat> Wouldn't it be great if... Because we're called to follow the way of the Lamb. You know when somebody maligns you, misrepresents you, says something evil, and you want to defend yourself, but you choose not to say anything? Following the way of the Lamb. What about that person who's hurt you or upset you? And you think, well, I'll just mention it to a few people what they've done to me. <laughs> you know, just let people know. How about we don't open our mouth and we just follow the way of the Lamb? It's happened to me recently at work, you know. I was not, not, I won't, not here, just in case anybody's thinking, oh, I wonder if he's talking about me. You know, this is my other place of work, <laughs> the school where I, 
Some, somebody had done so. I, I felt that I was being, not accused, but misrepresented or assumptions were being made about me. I spent the whole weekend thinking, I'm going to, when I wait till I see them, I'm going to say something. I tell you, I'm not having this. It's wrong. I've been, they've just misunderstood me and they've misrepresented me. I'm going to have words. Well, I went to have words and thankfully, before I made a complete fool of myself, I made a partial fool of myself. Before I made a complete fool of myself, the person involved explained and I thought, I just completely misunderstood. They weren't making assumptions. If anyone was making assumptions, it was me. And at the time, I, met, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, you're still learning, aren't you? <laughs> it's true, I'm learning the way of the Lamb. We don't have to open our mouths. He didn't open his mouth and he'd done nothing wrong. That's just, there's other things I could draw out. Please spend time. Spend time meditating on Isaiah 53. This is, this is the one who's on the throne. This is the greatest power in the universe. Selfless, sacrificial love. They're nearly done, but if you were... If, you're, if you were of a certain age, or if you like 1980s films, some of you will know who Mr. Miyagi is. Yeah, Mr. Miyagi? And you'll know, you'll know what this is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Except I can't do it without falling over. You all know who Mr. Miyagi is? No. The karate kid, that's that. Uh, rub on, rub off. You know, rub on, rub off. Mr. Miyagi, you're going to have to watch it now. The Karate Kid, 1985, something like that. Best films, 1980s, but anyway. Uh, I was going to say, I was going to say, well, maybe not, not all of them, but, but um, I was going to say that I, I, uh, I watched it as a kid. Actually, I was probably about 19, and I loved it. Um, but he's, Mr. Miyagi, he's like a martial arts, well, a karate expert, because it's the karate kid, and he teaches this kid who's being bullied, you know, how to defend himself, how to do karate. And fight. It's a great, great film, great film. Um, but I always, Mr. Miyagi, he's this quiet, old, a little bit frail, but dignified, old man, uh, but he's like brilliant at karate. He's got this superpower of karate. And so um, there's one scene, great scene, where Daniel Saab is being, is being kind of picked on and beaten up by these bullies. And then suddenly, over the fence jumps Mr. Miyagi, you know, this frail old man, jumps Mr. Miyagi, and it's all, whatever, that, that kind of... Um, Getting too old for this kind of thing. But. And he beats up on him. And, so, and, I, and I used to think, this, this way, you think, why is he talking about Mr. Miyagi? When are we talking about the lamb? I used to think Jesus was like Mr. Miyagi. Until quite recently, well, about 12 years ago. You're thinking, <laughs> some of you are thinking, I've always worried about his theology. Jesus is like Mr. Miyagi. I used to think this. Jesus was meek and humble in the sense that he kept his power under control. That's what meekness means, power under control. But you push him, you push him too far, and suddenly he'll leap out and say, oh, I want to work, whatever. Beat up on you. It's, it's, so his power was hidden and under control, but he could, if he wanted to, just show it and beat up on people. And I used to think, and I used to preach, those of you who have been around long enough, and who obviously memorize all my sermons, will, will, will remember that I used this as an illustration years and years ago. Um, and I used to think, well, the devil just beats up like Mr. Miyagi. Sorry, Jesus just beats up on the devil like Mr. Miyagi. But Jesus isn't just hiding his power. Jesus isn't just pretending to be weak, but really. He's actually reframing power. 
he's teaching us a totally different kind of power. It's not the power of violence. It's not the power of coercion. It's the power of selfless, sacrificial love. It's the power of like a lamb led to the slaughter, not opening his mouth, even though he's innocent. I had some more. I'm going to finish. I'll just, I'll just say these. I'll just, I know, I'm sorry. I'll just say them. I'll just state them. Thank you. Thank you. I receive that. No, keep going, she said, by the way. Anybody want to add to that? No, amen. Hallelujah. No, it's all right. I'm just going to state these points. I am not going to develop them. Because we're called to follow the way of the Lamb. We're called to behold the Lamb and worship, and we're going to do that in a, right in a moment. But we're called to follow the way of the Lamb. And I want to encourage you with a few things that come out of the book of Revelation. Tell you what, just flick the, just flick the um, slides. I'm literally just going to mention them, and I might just introduce you to a person. First of all, you need to know this. If you, if you know the way of the Lamb, if you understand that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is on the throne, the bullies do not win in the end. The tyrants and the dictators and the bullies and anything that is oppressing you, it does not win in the end. Therefore, you do not have to fight back with the way of the world. You can live the way of the lamb because it's the lamb that's overcome and it's the lamb that's on the throne. Here's another thing. He is slain, yet he's standing. When they looked at him, they, they saw him as a, as a lamb of God, looking as though he'd been slain, and yet he's standing. He is our crucified and risen Lord. Why is it important that he still looks slain? Well, the same reason it's important, he's still bearing the scars when he's risen again. He's showing you where the power actually lay. The power didn't lie in the resurrection. The resurrection shows us the kingdom of God has come, but the crucifixion shows us what the kingdom of God is like. And it is a, and it's a kingdom of sacrificial love, and that's where the power really lay. The power lay in the scars. The power lay in the lamb looking as though he'd been slain. Here's another one. We follow the lamb wherever he goes. We're cool. And for that might mean that we just let that misunderstanding, that, 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 that sort of criticism, that assumption, just let it go. But it might mean more than that. For some people, it might actually mean laying down their lives. You know, 6,000 people were, lost their lives last year across the world just for being Christians. But I want to just show you very quickly uh, what I, I would regard as a modern-day martyr. Just go to the next slide. This is Anatoly. He's a Ukrainian, and he, was, he went to a church called the Irpin Bible Church in Irpin, Ukraine, and um, he took his wife and his daughter to the border and left them, but then he felt that he had to go back to the church to be of service there, to do what he could to help there. This is just a few weeks ago. And a few weeks ago, there was uh, photos in our newspapers that was horrific, of what they said was a family who were killed at the bridge in Irpin. It wasn't actually a family, slightly incorrect. It was a mother and her two daughters. But the man in the picture who was dead was this young man who was just helping them across the bridge. He'd gone to serve. He'd gone to do what he could to help. And he paid with his life. You see, that's following the Lamb wherever he goes. He's not maybe a great martyr in terms of dying for the faith, one that people are going to write books about. But that's following the Lamb. He said, I'm going to go and serve and sacrifice myself for the love of others. That's following the Lamb. And so I want to say that people are here today 
who maybe don't know Jesus, don't have a relationship with him, I want you to know he's the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. But you've also, if you're going to follow him, you've got to be prepared to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. This is about laying your life down. It's no cheap and easy message about, yeah, come to Jesus. Be no, it's follow the Lamb wherever he goes. We're all called to follow the Lamb. And I'll finish with this. Really, I will. Really, I will. <laughs> the Lamb is also our shepherd. Let's just get this one. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Come on up, please. Isn't that amazing? Odd, but beautifully amazing. The sheep has become the shepherd. The Lamb has become the shepherd. The one who laid down his life for us is now leading us to the water of life. And whatever you are, whatever you're going through, maybe you are following the lamb wherever it goes at the moment and it hurts and it's difficult. I want to encourage you. The lamb is also your shepherd. The lamb is our shepherd. We shall not want. And even if you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death right now, the lamb, the one who laid down his life for you, is the shepherd of your soul. Let me ask you to stand. Lord, you spoke to us prophetically. You were going to equip us to see and to hear with new eyes and new ears. Lord, may we right now, even as we worship you and as we consider these things, let them just seep into our soul. And Lord, let us see you afresh, not through the words of a man, but Lord, by your spirit right now. Let's see you afresh. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, and we worship you. We join with the angels. We join with the living creatures. We join with the elders. And we say, all heaven declares the glory of the risen Lord. The Lamb was slain to reconcile a man to God. Let us see us afresh, Lord, where true power lies. And let us, as we see, let us be those who follow the way of the Lamb. Amen.